0: to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to
1: see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out his freedom. So that's Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Ennis the high priest was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you build as rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened, for the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly.
0: Hello again. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask as we read your word and consider it this evening that you would speak life into us. That you would assure our hearts and grow the confidence of our souls in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Such that we are willing to take risks to honor his name. Flood us with courage, we pray. Amen. Uh, if you're new visiting, visiting, uh, you're back uh, after a couple of weeks away. We're journeying through Acts uh, together as a church over a long period of time, uh, considering how the work of Jesus doesn't really finish when he is taken up into heaven. In fact, a whole new phase begins as he pours out the Holy Spirit and as his disciples testify about him to the very ends of the earth. In the first three chapters, you see all of that get going. Jesus commands it, the Spirit falls down, and a fantastic community is formed. And in chapter 3, there's a miracle that Peter does. And what follows in chapter 4 and following is the steady rise of obstacles and resistance to that mission. Now, in chapter 4, it's at barely at a simmer, really. What we see in chapter 4 is kind of a rising climate of threat and fear that really starts to raise the question for the disciples and for us as to how we are to respond to threat and fear in faith. Someone who got me thinking a little bit about this is actually, surprisingly, the High Chancellor of Germany. Uh, Angela Merkel, we weren't expecting that to come right now. Uh, but in the middle of the refugee crisis in Europe, when millions of people were rushing through and every nation was trying to work out what to do when there were a rising number of terrorist attacks, there were a lot of nations wondering, how are we are going to cope with this? And this rising threat, they'd closed their borders, and there was a lot of rhetoric, especially against the generous-minded Angela Merkel. She got up at the University of Bern and gave a very profound speech right in the middle of everything happening. She said this, fear was never a good advisor. Cultures marked by fear will not conquer their futures. And then perhaps even more amazingly, if you don't know she's a woman of faith, she says this, I would like to see Many people who have the courage to say, I am a Christian believer, and more people who have the courage to enter into a dialogue. What does Europe need when terrorist attacks rise, when humanitarian crisis abounds? Not fear, but courage. And in fact, not just any brand of courage, but courageous Christians. Isn't that remarkable? Her answer to rising threat and fear. You see, Angela Merkel gets something that I think we see in Acts 4 that is a part of modern life, the temptation that in the face of threat and fear, to surrender to it and just to become a part of it and respond to life and faith and threat through fear. But Angela says, as Acts 4 says, that there is no future in fear. The future of faith in this world belongs to courage. The future of faith in Sydney belongs to courage. The future of faith at this church belongs to courage. And the future of this congregation belongs to courage. Rather than fear. So I want to take you through Acts 4 tonight and tell you four things about courage and how to respond to rising levels of threat with a courage that meets them. Let's get going. Number one, about courage. Verse one, I think, introduces us to this. Courage is needed when authority threatens. Courage is needed when authority threatens. Have a look at verse one. This is kind of a continuation of the miracle story of chapter three. Really just keeps going. And at the point in verse, one where the priest and the captain and the Sadducees notice what Peter and John are teaching. And it says in verse 2 that they become greatly disturbed. That's their job, to become greatly disturbed about various things. Uh, They're the gatekeepers of orthodoxy. And what they hear Peter and John saying is some teaching that really doesn't seem right. They are proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. That the dead were raised is a very Jewish idea, but these guys were twisting it and attaching it to the person of Jesus. And doing that was to undermine the authority and the orthodoxy of the leaders of the day. And they consider that a threat. And so they seize them in verse 3, they throw them in jail, which worked really well because 2,000 people started believing. So that was a really good move. Uh, And then... In the break of the new day, they instigate this power play. Everything about this meeting is des- designed to threaten Peter and John back into line. They gather all the heavies. Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, every one of the high priestly family. And they kind of put them out around the room and it says in verse Seven that they had peter and john brought before them it literally reads that peter and john were in the middle of them and so they're in the middle and they're they're surrounded by the cultural heavies of their day and this is one of the most intimidating rooms that a jewish man could stand in all of the cultural power is on display to intimidate them to threaten them into silence This is the context in which these disciples display courage in the power of the Holy Spirit. The context for courage is when authority Threatens, And I think that's quite helpful for us this chapter because what what happens from here on out is in verse 5 there's persecution and violence and that escalates through the next chapters to the point where the first martyrdom occurs at the end of chapter 7. And we're not really in a chapter 7 kind of part of the world. We're not in a part of the Middle East or part of Asia where you might be lynched tomorrow for your faith. Nor are we really that persecuted. But we are in a place where there is a sense of increasing threat and perhaps growing fear. The thought that if you come out on social media with a view from Scripture or from the Lord Jesus, that you might be shamed until you are silent. That if you hold certain views, there may be big, culturally powerful companies who won't like you. There's a vague sense that despite the fact you're kind of welcome, who you are and what you believe and what you do isn't really something that should be spoken about in this age and at this time in a city like Sydney. We're not persecuted, I don't think, yet. But as believers, there is a rising level of threat. Why is that? Well, the disciples, when they gather together at the end of the story in verse 25, look for an interpretation in Psalm chapter 2 that we had read out just before. And in that is prophesied the reality that happens in every age that the kings and rulers of the earth will always oppose God's Messiah. See in verse 25, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord. And against his anointed one, his Christ, his Messiah. In every age, humanity will always not want Jesus Christ. Threat will always rise. I hear quite a lot at the moment that uh, our our city loves Jesus, it just doesn't like the church. And I totally get that because I've met a lot of people who have no reason to step into a church again because people like me did things that were unspeakable. But even given that, what Psalm 2 says is that, in fact, the default mode of the human heart is opposition to the person of Jesus Christ. That's default. And that means in every part of the world, threat will rise against God's Messiah and against God's people. And that is the context where courage is needed. So what is courage? And this is the second thing. What courage is, as we we see it displayed here in Peter and John, is confidence in the authority of Jesus when under threat. Confidence in the authority of Jesus when under threat. That's what you hear Peter and John talking about. Peter, in verse 8, filled with the Holy Spirit, calls out the leaders. This is insane what he does at this point. He stares down the most intimidating room assembled possible to get him into line and tells them that their authority has ended because Jesus and his authority have begun. He stares them down in verse 10 and says, Then know this, you've got to love that beginning to a sentence, know this. You and all the people is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. See what he says? He says, This court that's around me, you declared Jesus guilty. You declared Jesus unorthodox. You declared Jesus unworthy to live. You opposed the Christ. But God turned the verdict back around. God declared life. God declared innocence. God declared and laid at the feet of Jesus all power and authority. He overthrew your verdict, Peter says. In fact, he quotes Psalm 118, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Jesus has had all authority laid at his feet to the point in verse 12 that salvation is found in no other No one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Which when you read it, does sound a bit arrogant, doesn't it? I mean, can you say that kind of stuff in Sydney in this day and age where we're multicultural and there's lots of religion, there's lots of paths, lots of truths? And I think you're right. I think it is arrogant for humans to say stuff like that. But I don't think it's arrogant for God to. And that's what the resurrection is. The resurrection is God casting his vote. God declaring the right path. God laying all his store and stock in one person. And the person raised from the dead is Jesus Christ. No other name. No other way. No other riddle. No other teaching. And that means there is no other hope for men and women in Newtown than Jesus. There is no hope for men and women in Sydney except Jesus. There is no hope for your friends except Jesus. There is no hope for your family but Jesus. Can you see that when your heart latches onto the fact that all authority has been laid at Jesus' feet, that you can walk into the scariest room imaginable, And say, I know you have some authority, but you have nothing like what he has. When your heart grips that, that's where courage comes from. Confidence in the authority of Jesus Christ. That God has raised him from the dead. What is that going to look like tomorrow? Let me give you three real quick things. and We'll come back to them at the end. Three, three ways of living out this courage, the first way is really simple. I think there are a lot of people in the room who just do need to do the simple, courageous task of connecting the dots of their lives for people. They live a life that is like Jesus, merciful, kind, compassionate, patient, like he was. but there is no sense in which people understand that this person belongs to Jesus Christ, that who they are flows out of the fact that he was raised from the dead. And and courage for you might look up tomorrow, connecting that dot for someone for the first time and saying, hey, you know how you say this stuff about me? Can I say, it's about the fact that the only name in which people can be saved is Jesus. I just wanted to connect that dot for you. The banner above me is him. That might be courage for you this week. There's an opposite type of courage. The second one is like this. You might have the name of Jesus above your head, but you're not that person of integrity. In your workplace, you buckle under the culture, under the place you work in, and you cut corners that obey men rather than God. That's the outcome that uh, Peter and John say ultimately happens if you believe in the resurrection. Uh, When they're told to be silent, they respond, but Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. When you're confident in the resurrection of Jesus, you obey God at the cost of man. And that might be the courage that you need to take into Monday morning. But the third thing might be this. It might be that you need to take a risk tomorrow. You might need to lose something so that someone else can take hold of the name of Jesus. So that You can start living a life under his lordship completely. Connect the dots. Integrity or risking something to make him known. Three ways to live in his authority. But the third thing I think you really need to understand from this text is this. God uses ordinary cowards. God uses ordinary cowards. You know, I think a lot of us think, and we look at texts like this, and people like Peter and John, and we think, if I knew the Bible a bit better, if I was a bit more experienced, if I'd been a Christian a bit longer, if I understood things a bit clearer, if my circumstances were a bit different, then I'd be like them too. But the reality is, is that Peter and John are absolute nobody. In fact, that's the thing that really strikes the people questioning them. See that in verse 13? when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were, what? Unschooled, ordinary men. Imagine that being your title tomorrow. Hi, I'm an unschooled, ordinary woman. I'm an unschooled, ordinary man. They were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. These guys haven't been to university. These guys haven't had... they have been with Jesus for a while, but they don't know a whole stack. They haven't made an argument from Scripture to save themselves ever in their life. Peter just gets up and starts making them one day. These are ordinary nothings. God uses ordinary people like this to fulfill his mission. But it gets even better because the last time Peter was at this scene in Luke, just a few chapters back, he acted like a complete coward. Jesus was the one in the room surrounded by the people, and he was off to the side somewhere warming his hands, and there was a teenage girl there who asked him, do you belong to Jesus? And he said, no. Peter is a complete coward. And that's why just before he speaks, you get that little phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit, because Peter on his own is an ordinary coward. But filled with the Holy Spirit is used by God, massively overturned to be almost another person testifying to the resurrection of Jesus. And God uses him to put the whole Sanhedrin on notice that their authority is at an end because the authority of Jesus has begun. God uses ordinary cowards like me and like you. In fact, I think this is such a compelling transformation in Peter that really in and of itself, is, it is a great testament to the fact that the resurrection of Jesus most likely has happened historically in this world. Uh, there's a German professor of uh, the history of religion, Uh, who who sees a particular problem in texts like this. He says, if you, you want to understand how Christianity got going, for someone like Peter, one of two miracles has to have happened. Either Peter somehow shook off the fact that his best friend and master got crucified and that he was a deathly coward, just shook it off one day and became incredible, or that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. One of these two miracles has to have happened for Christianity to have got going. Here's his conclusion. If the defeated and depressed disciples, overnight, could change into a victorious movement of faith, then this would be a much greater miracle than the resurrection itself. In a purely logical analysis, the resurrection of Jesus is the lesser of two evils. He's an orthodox Jew. He doesn't have a lot of love for Christianity. You could maybe get that with the two evils bit. Um, but for him, the transformation of people like Peter is most likely logically explained only by the fact that Jesus has actually risen from the dead. That God has actually laid all authority at his feet already. And if you're looking for a reason to have confidence in the resurrection this evening, look at the person of Peter in this passage compared to a few chapters before and let the penny drop for you that God, having raised Jesus from the dead, uses ordinary cowards to fulfill his mission. As I was preparing this sermon, I was praying as I try and do as often as I can when I'm praying. And the thing I prayed for as I was considering this, I asked God for 200 acts of courage. 200 acts of courage from Acts 4. Can you imagine 200 ordinary cowards from this church who decide that the resurrection of Jesus is ultimate? and courageously take risks for His name, what might happen? You know, I think sometimes we trick ourselves, and we start to think that uh, we need to be someone else before God will use us. And what ends up happening is we just end up sitting on the bench doing nothing, wondering why we're not experiencing God do anything. But it might simply just be the fact that it's because we don't do anything. And why would God give courage to people who have not yet been ready and willing to step out and risk something? Because Jesus has been raised from the dead. Acts 4 is summoning us out. But the fourth thing we need to realize as we get to the end of this passage is that we don't have courage unless we ask for it. At the end of this passage, after they get out of that scene, the, the, the Sanhedrin are so confused that they don't even know how to punish Peter and John. They're so confused about what's happening, which is incredible. And they just let them go, which is a remarkable act of God in and of itself. And if I was Peter and John after this point, I'd be feeling so adrenaline pumped that I'd just be running away high-fiving and fist-pumping and saying, you know, did you see what I said? That was incredible. I didn't even know those words could come out of my mouth. And did you see their faces? Like, I feel like I need to go buy a cape and just celebrate. But they have the good sense to realize that threats are not fake. They're real. And fear can actually rise. And actually what they go away and do is go find all their friends and pray. Because they know that you don't have courage in the face of threat unless you ask for it. And so they lift their voices in verse 24 to the sovereign Lord, to the God who controls the earth and the seas, who who even at the death of Jesus Christ was in control. Because he'd seen it and ordained it and decided beforehand in verse 28. They lift their eyes above the threat, above the fear. And they say in verse 29, Now, Lord, consider their threats. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. They say to their father, we need more power. We need more courage. The threat is high, but you are higher, so flood us with strength. And then what happens in the room, I think is maybe even written for us to know that God actually answers prayer like this. In verse 31, the whole place shakes And then they walk out of there full of courage to keep uh, speaking the word of Jesus despite the threats, despite the fear. It's a remarkable moment to show us that when things are on the line, when culture raises its voice, perhaps in opposition and threat to us, if we ask our Father for courage and we step out, He will flood us with the strength needed to complete His mission. God answers prayer like that. And if you are willing this evening to take a risk on the resurrection and pray for the courage and strength for it to be done, He will answer. 200 acts of courage. Connecting the dots between who you are and the Jesus you love. The integrity beneath the name that you bear. The risk you're willing to take. I meet a lot of Christians who have a dream of who they'll be in 10 years, that they'll have become incredibly generous, or they'll have started something incredible in another country, or they will have told their friends and their family finally about Jesus, or they would have started something incredible. But I never believe anyone's dream unless they're willing to take a risk to do part of it today. Because the only things that happen in God's power are the ones that we step out on the resurrection in the power of the Spirit to make happen. And I think God is calling us as a congregation, as a church today, to find our courage in the Holy Spirit. But as we conclude, I think there's one other thing real quick that Peter must have thought in that room. I just imagine him there. Surrounded. And can't help but think that flooded in his mind was the fact that he stood here first. My Jesus was here. I was out there denying him. And he was in here having courage when I was a coward. I can't help him thinking that he wasn't courageous and he was a coward. But Jesus had been courageous on his behalf and had been condemned by that scene, led to the cross, borne the punishment of his cowardice, so that whatever risk he took in that room meant nothing because of what Jesus had already secured on the cross. You see, you will never be courageous until you know that you aren't, but Jesus is. And you put all your stock in what He has done for you. Pray for the courage and risk because of the resurrection. Let me pray. And I'll invite the band up. Oh, Father, we come before you today aware. And with it, the reality beating in our hearts that Jesus has been raised from the dead. That all authority is at His feet now. And Father, we confess that we are cowards. Ordinary cowards. And we ask for courage. We ask to be flooded with the same strength that the disciples had in that room. To connect the dots before the people before us. To live with integrity and obedience to you rather than any person. To take risks knowing that we are not the courageous ones, but Jesus was. Father, I pray for the people in the room who have a risk on their hearts, burning. That when Monday rolls around, you would flood them with the strength to step. And I pray this in Jesus' name.